0: Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdee and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation, the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes, at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Today I'm delighted to welcome one of Australia's finest and most well-loved writers, Dr Charlotte Wood AM, to Books, Books, Books to talk about her ninth book, The Luminous Solution, a collection of essays about creativity, resilience and the inner life, which was published by Alan and Unwin in September this year. Before we start, I'd like to tell you a little bit about Charlotte. She holds three degrees, including an MA in Creative Arts from the University of Technology and a PhD in Creative Writing from the University of New South Wales. Charlotte's the author of six novels, a collection of interviews with writers and a book about cooking. That's one of my favourites. And she produces a podcast called The Writer's Room. Her 2015 novel, The Natural Way of Things, won the Stella Prize, was the joint winner of the Prime Minister's Literary Award and was the Indie Book of the Year and Novel of the Year. Her 2019 novel, The Weeknd, had great reviews, won the 2020 Australian Book Industry Award for Literary Fiction and has been an international bestseller, published in the UK, Germany, the US and Italy. The Sunday Times named it as one of the 25 best novels of 2020. Charlotte's writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, The Sydney Morning Herald, Griffith Review, and The Saturday Paper, amongst others. In 2019, Charlotte was made a member of the Order of Australia, AM, for significant services to literature. She's had great reviews for The Luminous Solution, as she has had for her other books. The Sydney Morning Herald has said, as one of Australia's most successful novelists, The courage and boldness of her examining the less visible and unenviable parts of creativity is exhilarating. Charlotte, welcome to Books, Books, Books.
1: Thank you so much, Nick. What a beautiful introduction.
0: Now, you've been asked many times over the years to write a book like this, collecting your writing, your essays on art and creativity and writing, but you have resisted. Why was 2020 the right time to do it?
1: Because of the pandemic, basically. Um, Short answer. The long answer is that I, I mean, I'd been invited to to publish a collection of um, essays, I suppose, um, not necessarily strictly on creativity, but that's the stuff that I found myself writing about most often, I guess, especially in the last 10 years or so. And then when, um, at the beginning of, of 2020, when we went into our first lockdown in Sydney, I went into a, probably, I hope, like lots of people, that um, I wasn't alone in this, in a state of pretty much blind panic. I just sort of lost all my bearings and, um, you know, none of us knew what was going to happen. We didn't know if we were going to have people we loved die, if we were going to have our livelihoods. You know, I had no idea what would happen to the book industry or my partner's business, not to mention all our families and loved people. And my response to that initially was to go into this sort of frenzy of activity, of sort of overscheduling, um, you know, Zoom things and communicating like crazy with everybody and stuffing in books and TV series and um, yoga classes and recipes and I didn't quite get to sourdough bread making but everything but. And, um, and then I realised I just couldn't keep this up. It was just sort of... It, was, it wasn't um, in any form um, um, helping me. It was just freaking me out. And I realized that it was kind of the opposite of, my, my, of the good creative state that I've you know, been in when I'm working well. And I was invited around that time to write an essay, or to write a piece for um, the Fairfax Media on the subject of the inner life. And that was one of those great commissions that sort of, you know, I wouldn't have um, thought about writing on that topic necessarily, um, but it it made me consider, well, what is an inner life? What does it consist of? What helps it to flourish? What um, damages it? And so I wrote this piece and, I, and it was published. And after that, I got a lot of feedback from people who weren't writers or artists, um, but who said, and in that in that piece, sorry, I articulated this panic and and then the need to just stop, and go quiet and still, and what happens when you do that. So after after I published it, I um I got a lot of these people saying to me that it had articulated their own experience, and they weren't people in the professional creative field, but they were thoughtful people who you know ha- have um, a dedication to a thoughtful inner life. So. That's what made me think, well, maybe the time is right to collect all the scattered thoughts that I'd had over the years about creativity, which for artists is, you know, totally wound up, tied up with the inner life, and just um, sort of bring them together and see what I thought about what this thing creativity is and how to nurture it, whether it's important, why it's important, and how it plays out in, in my experience of writing.
0: Charlotte, you say that this is not just a book for artists or for people, um, writers, artists of different sorts, but you you say in a very lovely way in the preface that what you describe as the joys, fears and profound self-discoveries of creativity are the birthright of everyone. And you say that this book is for everyone who lives their life with curiosity and intention. So I was wondering why is curiosity important? And secondly, what does it mean to live your life with intention?
1: I guess living your life with intention, I think, you know, can be can be thought of in all kinds of ways. But it, um, to me, means just thinking about the sorts of things that you put into your mind and the things that you keep out of your mind. So not being just uh, at the mercy of external forces all the time. I do think that um, art, not art making, but making of any kind is a real um, Birthright. I feel kind of romantic about it. I think it's a very, very profound and fulfilling thing for any person to have that experience. And that might be planting a seedling, making a cake, um, playing something on the piano, bringing anything into the world that wasn't there before you made it is a really um, profoundly affecting experience, I think. And I do. That is available to all of us. But I think that we so many people have a sort of yearning to to have some creative um expression in their lives, but they they decide at some point that they are not creative. You know, I have people say to me all the time, Oh, I wish I was creative. And I kind of get so frustrated with that because. Mm-hmm. I think that impression depends on a whole lot of fallacies. And one of them is that people, are um, you know, I think people do have natural talents for things, but but it's not that you have a certain amount of talent and that's it. You can start off with very little talent or no talent except an interest and a curiosity, and then you grow your talent, you develop it by applying all these other things like discipline and routine and practice. But um so curiosity is, is to me, the greatest driver of, of any creative impulse. And it is not about performance. It's not about the outcome. It's about, oh, what will happen if I do this? You know, so if you if you start to cook and you're no good at it, it doesn't matter because you become good at it by doing it again and overcoming that failure. And, you know, I had someone ask me in an in a, um, event the other day that, they said, I've always loved to draw and paint, but my parents told me it was a waste of time. And I still I still try to do it, but I just see, you know, failure as soon as I start. And I said, well, I understand that, but that failure at the starting point is what every artist experiences all the time. So just sort of acknowledging that, that difficulty and failure is at the heart of creativity all the time. And it's not something to to get hung up about. It's just something to know that it's part of the process. And that's you know, and then you, it's almost you just need to forget about that. You know, um, the idea that what you're doing has to be good, in inverted commas, mm. is such a um, it it just stops people in mm. their tracks. And it has stopped me in my tracks in the past. And I, and now I know that well, it's no good. But that's of no relevance you know i just keep going and then you'd write all the crap stuff in my case as a writer in order to get to the good stuff so i throw out 80 percent of what i do
0: um but that's the only way i can do it you talk at one point. I think it was Joan Didion who talks about sitting with the writing. She gave this amazing analogy. She, she was it. I Joan think Didion? it was no. It's um, Annie Dillard. Annie Dillard. That she says it's like sitting with a somebody with who's patient. dying. Mm. Yeah, sitting with the patient. It's like sitting with somebody who's dying. That you've just got to be patient. You've got to get through the difficult patches.
1: And I think she says, I, I can't quote it exactly, but you you sit with the patient and hold its hand. And you sort of feel sorrow for its many ills and hope it will get better. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that sitting with the patient, every every person who professionally practices an art um, will tell you that's, you know, well, for me, at least 50% of the, it's just turning up. You turn up and mm. you turn, like you turn up to your piano practice. You turn up to learning to knit. Um, you turn up to make your dinner. Um, and it screws up and then you, you know, adjust it, you whatever, add something else, um, throw it out, start again. That's, that's the same as any creative impulse expression.
0: Let's talk about that essay that you wrote for the, um, for the Age and for the Sydney Morning Herald, which has become in your book the first chapter, Fertile Ground. You wrote it when we were only a few weeks into the first lockdown last year. And you refer to a psychology study that found that there were three things common to experience of extreme creativity. The first was a positive hedonic tone. The second was slightly elevated energy level. And the third was promotion focus. And I wanted to ask you how that study helped you. What did you draw from it?
1: Yeah, it helped me enormously. And this was something I discovered while I was writing The Natural Way of Things, and I was also doing my PhD and looking at cognitive processes of creativity. And the study was kind of life-changing for me because it showed me that according to this kind of uh, research, which, you know, isn't doesn't cover everything about creativity, but It was an analysis that according to this research, everything I was doing was the opposite of what was the most beneficial thing to be doing. So the study was a meta-analysis of 25 years of mood and creativity research. And it was cognitive psychology, basically. And so it showed those three things that you mentioned. The first one was, so out of all these studies, the summary was that the most creative mood state was made up of first- a positive affect, a positive hedonic tone, just feeling, you know, up as opposed to down. The second one was a slightly elevated activation, they called it, or energy level. So not really super excited, but not totally Zen, just slightly, I sort of think of it as an anticipatory sort of, ooh, ooh, you know, a bit, a bit sort of excited. And the third one was this promotion focus. And I guess this one was the real shock to me because what that means is that you go to the work with the idea of seeking gain rather than avoiding pain. And the analogy that they used somewhere in this um, study was uh, uh, to think of a mouse either running away from a predator or going to looking for cheese. And it's the looking for cheese that you want. So what I realized when I read this was that, oh, my God, everything I do when I go to the desk is the opposite of that. It was fear, anxiety, a kind of gloominess, a certainty that it was going to be terrible, um, a sort of very low kind of, you know, depressed um, energy level or hyper anxious. Um, And these things are all the opposite. So
0: how did you turn it around?
1: Well, I first of all got some help from a psychologist friend of mine called Alison Manning, who is amazing and has a a practice now working with writers, with Mm -hmm. this sort of stuff. Um, And she told me about something called state creation, which is basically a decision to change your mindset before you sit down to work. Now, I know that there will be artists and people listening to this going oh I couldn't possibly work like that and it's totally well the only thing I think that you should do is whatever works for you so if this has no appeal then it's you know absolutely do whatever you do Um, and I'll just preface this by saying I'm also not suggesting that that art can only come out of a sort of happy Pollyanna, you know, state of being, because I absolutely don't think
0: that at all. Charlotte, what are the things that you've learned feed and nurture your creativity?
1: Well, there are a lot of things um, sort of internally based, but there are also a lot of things externally based. So one of the, and and those external things are really very um, ordinary things. And they're kind of fairly old fashioned things, I guess. And they are about putting boundaries of space and time uh, around my creative life. And those boundaries are things that look like getting proper sleep, you know, going to bed early, getting up early, having exercise, eating well, all of those, you know, quite boring things really, but also things like having a fairly orderly house. Mm, I found that
0: one interesting. So it's not just your actual study where you work, just a general sense that things were in good shape in your in your whole house.
1: Yeah, I mean and you know, I, anyone who knows me will know that there is absolutely no um, you know, house proud obsession going on in <laughs> my house. But I mean a general sense of, of spaciousness and order and you know, there's food in the fridge, the yeah. shopping's done. Um, you know, there's a there's a baseline level of you know, tidiness just just to avoid that feeling of congestion. You know, if you and and one of the things weirdly that does feel congesting if it's not, you know, baseline okay is the garden which I walk through to get to my workspace and I look at, and if it looks sort of scrappy and mouldy and you know, and, and I say this in the um, fertile ground piece, it's like that to me weirdly the garden seems to symbolise my inner mind more than anything. So, and you know, it's a pretty, <laughs> it's a pretty messy garden. <laughs> So, um, but just some level of, of control, I guess. So those are the external things. And then the internal things are um, paying attention to my subconscious mind, taking it seriously. And I think for Australians in particular, this can be a challenge because we're not, we're our culture does not embrace creativity. It doesn't embrace the sort of dreamy, um, irrational things, and I think any any real artist must embrace the dreamy, irrational things because that's where art comes from.
0: Do you think that's peculiar to Australia, or do you think that that's a worldwide phenomenon?
1: Look, I think it is the way we all live. The digital interruption is the worst, you know, the distractions, that's obviously a worldwide thing. But I do think Australia is quite anti-art. You know, I mean, we've seen that in our government's response to the pandemic, that that the arts was just totally sidelined in any funding support um, unless there were tradies involved, you know. And, and it, I find that so sad because it's just such a lost opportunity for our whole culture to be more imaginative. And I think, you know, if, if we, at the beginning of the pandemic, if the authorities sat down with the best minds from every field you know, from the arts, from science, from sport, from industry, um, from health, and brought them together and said, how are we going to tackle this? We could have come up with amazing solutions to protect people, to nourish people, to to free people. And yet we have a very narrow view of... Um, of we think the arts is a sort of, a, you know, a pretty picture hanging on the wall. That's a kind of luxury and a... And a and a kind of distraction, whereas I think uh, creativity and the things that artists can bring to all of society should be central to all of us. So, you know, I think there are lost opportunities and I think in other cultures, you know, there are artists and, and writers are much more respected by the general culture than they are in Australia. Mm. Um, but, you know, that might have its good sides as well. There, there might be benefits to that. but. Um, I think, so that's why artists have to be incredibly self-reliant here because um, you know, there's there's a sense that you do it for love and that you um, that you're that it's not work. Um, yeah, so I think there's a sort of feeling that that it's a bit self-indulgent or that you know, if you're a serious person, you wouldn't spend your life doing that sort of stuff. But, you know, I actually don't really care what people think about that. But I just think that there's so much that the general culture is missing out on by sidelining creative thinkers.
0: Charlotte, you write in the chapter, The Getting of Wisdom, a couple of things I thought were really interesting. First of all, you write that when you start at the beginning of each book, you're in a state of unknowing and you realise that that means you're on the right track and you you quote some people who. Um, who talk about that as well in the arts, why Why is that a good thing and how do you get past that state of unknowing?
1: Mm.
0: I mean, it's a good thing and it's a horrible thing at the same time. <laughs> it's, um,
1: it's a good thing because of this curiosity we spoke about before that if I knew what a book was going to be before I started it, it wouldn't have the energy that comes from the, the sense of discovery that happens through the making of the book, um, it wouldn't have the the energy that comes from the risk of the book completely failing. Um,
0: so... Is that one of the things that drives you, that, that gives you that impetus?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's finding out stuff. So, mm. you know, I don't know what a book is about before I begin, but I might have a sort of scenario or a question and then the writing of the book is me answering the question or finding out what's going on in this scenario.
0: Charlotte, um, is this what you talk about in the book as problem finding? Is, is this what you're talking about now?
1: Yes, that's right. So um, there was a, a study done by a guy called Mihai Csikszentmihalyi and he's the guy people might know as the flow man. He wrote the books about flow, um, but he's a very well-known creativity researcher. And he and his co-researcher did a big experiment in the 70s where they got a bunch of visual art students and with a whole lot of um, things on a table and told them just to choose some objects and go use them to make a still life. And then they observed how these people worked. And quite a lot of them just grabbed some of the things and stuck them on a table and got to work. Whereas there was a different group who took a long time to to choose the objects, to arrange them in the right, a way that satisfied them, they would pick them up and put them down, put them back, change. This took a long time to sort of set up what they would then paint. Um, and then at the end of all this, there were some sort of ec- art experts brought in to look at the, at the works of these people, not knowing anything about the process before, And the works that were judged to be the most original, the most creative, were these ones from the second group, the Problem Finders. Mm. And I do think uh, there's something, the writers I know who I think of as truly creative people are the ones who who take a long time to work out the subject of their book. Uh, I'm thinking of someone like Vicky Hastridge, for example. I don't know if people have read her amazing book, Night Fishing, but um, and other books, but there's a sort of sense that the problem of the book will only slowly emerge and only once you finally find out what the problem is, then you go to solve it by writing it. I mean, it sounds kind of airy-fairy, I know, but it's it it really strikes home to, to um, some creative people when you talk about this.
0: So I wondered if you could, sort of put that in practical terms for us in terms of The Weekend, which is a book, I'm sure most of our listeners have read that book, but basically a, a book about a group of three women friends, one of the, the fourth has recently died and the three of them in their seventies head up to the beach house of the one that's died to, to sort it out. And it's, you know, far too complex to summarize in a few words, but for a, a bit, one of a better description is a book about aging, about female friendship. So yeah. I wanted to put in that context, what was the problem there and what? how did you solve it?
1: Yes, well, I think with that book, so the, the first exploratory phase was thinking I want to write about friendship. That's all I knew at the beginning. And I wanted to write about long friendship. So, you know, and the, the question that I had for myself was, is it possible to maintain a rich, alive friendship for 40 or 50 years? So that was a question. So that led me then to go, okay, well, if I'm writing about that, I have to have people who are old because in order to, you know, explore this thing, they've got to be, you know, at least in their 70s. So there was that. So then I had these three friends for ages just bringing them together, having kind of, um, you know, sort of friction but not knowing why. Why were they in this place together? I knew that I wanted to set it at the beach Partially, just as a sort of um, reaction against my previous book, *The Natural Way of Things*, which was set in the middle of nowhere, I wanted this. It was I mean, a lot of it was about being in opposition to the previous book. It, it was. So I had this sort of setting. I had these women, but for a long time, I couldn't work out why they were there together, um, because I needed them to be sort of. Trapped together in this place for their friendship issues to play out. But the problem was, well, why don't they just leave if they're annoying each other so much? And then I had to leave the book aside, had to put it away for six months because I just thought this isn't working. There's no, and it was because I hadn't found this central driving thing. And so it turned out that after those six months, I went back to the desk in total no hope whatsoever. Um, just thinking well something will turn up I hope and then finally the the problem that turned up was oh it's their dead friend's house and they're here together to clean out this house for sale so then I had my kind of motor and my premise really but it took you know two years to get that premise which seems ridiculous when you look at you know the book now. It begins with that premise, but mm. so for me, these things are often about this very slow emergence of the thing that actually gets the wheels of the story turning. And you know, so I think probably most of what I had written up to that point I had to throw away, and then I, but I had mm. my engine then, and you know, the throwing away doesn't bother me at all. It's the kind of maintaining the faith, holding your nerve that the thing will arrive
0: if you keep showing up to the desk. Charlotte, something that you've just done is something that you do so well in the book. You analyse your own work with such a critical eye, but then you articulate it so clearly. Mm. Have you always been able to do that?
1: I think that what I understand now compared to when I first began is that asking questions is the way to find out things and that, Asking stupid questions is the way to find out things. And being, you know, I've got a quote somewhere in the book from Anne Sexton, and she said, to be a fool, that requires the greatest courage. And I think that's really true mm. um, of any creative um, pursuit,
0: you know. Being keep, a beginner, asking, keep asking and don't rest until you've got the answer.
1: Exactly. And keep asking even when you think you have got the answer. Yeah. You know, because maybe it's the wrong answer. So keep digging, keep cycling and circling. You know, there's a there's a chapter with these nine ways of creative thinking that I sort of discovered yes. in my PhD. Yes. Um, but it's I suppose I I've, I've learned over the years to to articulate what I'm doing. <sighs> mainly out of desperation because it's not working. (laughs) And so I go, okay, well, what's working? What's not working? Um, What's this about? Why is, you know, one time, I think I was in this returning to the weekend, I was sitting up here in my studio having a really shocking day. I went back down to the house and said to my husband, this is after I'd had this big six-month break. I said to him, you know, I think it is over this book. I don't think it's. I think it's this is the one that's going to die on me, and he just said, "Oh well, welcome back to work." You know, <laughs> this is what you always do. And then I I was really annoyed that day because I was reading uh, Anne Enright, and thinking this is so good, and mine is so shit. <laughs> and so the way that I got around it that day, and it's often these things are just a matter of rescuing a day. You know, if you think the book is failing. Mm. You just go, I just need to rescue this day or this paragraph. And if I get a good paragraph, that will keep me going. And it will. Like a a good paragraph can keep you going for a month, you know. Um, But that day I looked at the, and I thought, okay, well, what am I going to do about this? You know, Anne Enright's great. I'm terrible. So what do I do with that? And what I thought was, okay, I'm going to look at this paragraph of hers and look at this paragraph of mine and go, what's the difference between these things? And, you know, and if I was a younger writer, I might go, well, the difference is that she's got talent and I'm terrible and blah, blah," all that crap, which is true, but I don't care about that. It's, It's not helpful. And you're not the person to decide that either, you know. So what I noticed, though, was like, oh, actually, her paragraph is full of movement. Everything in it is moving, and mine is very static.
0: So that was like... Do you mean in terms of the rhythm of the language or the words used... I mean,
1: in terms of the scene of what was happening, um, that that there was, mm. but also probably the language. And but at that point, it was definitely in. I can't even remember. It was in um, the Green Road, but I can't remember what was going on in the book. But it was a sense of, oh, she's got four elements here, and they're all moving. You know, there's a character doing this. There's the weather doing that. There's, you know, something distracting over here. There's some interruption. So it was this very. Um, active uh, piece of work, whereas mine was someone sitting thinking. So it's like, all right, well, what I'm going to do today in this paragraph, in this hour, is chuck in a whole lot of interruptions and bombs into this little scene. So she's sitting and thinking, but then the phone rings, and then somebody else interrupts her, and then she has to move. Or so that immediately just enlivened, you know, that patch of writing, and just gave me enough to go on for another day mm. you know so i think i think when you beginner writers or artists or you know chefs or anybody um are kind of over obsessed with it's no good it's no good i'm no good at this and after a while i think you just get bored with that yeah and it's the meaning that you attach to that you know that you go okay it's no good but I guess when I was younger, that meant I should give up because I was never going to be any good, or that meant people would think I'm an idiot, or that meant, you know, all these things that are just of no use to you. They're no relevance, and they're, as you say, not even true or fully true, but also that that the knowledge that, okay, this is crap now, but I can improve it, <laughs> you know, that, that is really the only saving grace is that you can fix things you can they can get better and only by getting through all the rubbish do I find the material that makes me go ah oh, okay I'm interested in that you know I can I can do something with that
0: Charlotte I want to ask you a little bit about your PhD it was called looking for trouble problem finding processes in literary creativity in you know? I gather from that you distilled the nine sort of methods that you, you talk about in your book. I wondered in, in that particular chapter called The Grumpy Struggle, Despair and the Luminous Solution. Where does that quote come from and, and what's the idea of the luminous solution?
1: Thank you for asking about that. It's a great quote. And it's, it's a from, great quote. It's from the American author Janet Burroway. And she has written about her writing process. And and this is what she wrote. Once I'm working, the process is much the same in every genre. The effort to get myself to the computer, a period of grumpy struggle, despair, the luminous solution that appears in bed or bath, joyful work, repeat, 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 repeat. So, there are all kinds of models of creativity, very well established models that um, articulate these various stages. And I think it's John Dewey who says the creative process starts with a difficulty is perceived or felt. And so, uh, then there are other things like verification, illumination, um, incubation, and so on. Um, So, but an important point in, in a lot of these models and in certainly in, in the work that I did in my tiny little study um, showed that this is a completely iterative process. You have to do it again and again and again and again um, to get to your, your final kind of, um, you know, cohesive work. So that's why I loved putting that um, quote in, especially the repeat, repeat, repeat part.
0: Charlotte, I wondered how you enjoyed the process of writing a PhD. And I think you've answered one of my other questions. I was wonder- wondering, did you stop your fiction writing just to focus on getting the PhD done? But from what you've said a little bit before, were you doing the PhD at the same time as you were writing The Natural Way of Things? I was. Wow. They sort of
1: fed each other, I guess. Um, I mean, they were very separate sort of brain processes, you know, because The Natural Way of Things was... Um, very primal, instinctive, um, you know, I've often said it was almost written out of the body rather than the mind. But it also taught me so much about letting my work come rather than forcing it out. Mm. And it taught me about allowing my unconscious mind to bring me things for my work, Mm. Um, whereas before I'd been far too, Sort of not too controlling, but because that worked for other books, but but for this book, it was really important to just let it rip in a way that was quite frightening to me to find out what weird stuff was coming out of my brain.
0: You know, but it didn't work until I let that stuff come. One of the things you talked about in that context, I think, was disruption. In you disrupted what you were doing in two ways. Uh, first of all, you had been sending it in the past. It was based very closely on what had happened at the Hay Institution. And second, you'd made it very realistic. And you said that you sort of disrupted that and you made the two major changes. It moved from being realistic to surrealistic. And instead of it being said in the past, you said it in the present or the near future. So was that disruption, that was a necessary part of the process for you with that?
1: It really was. And I only really came to it out of desperation, you know, that I had tried everything else the writing was just dead on the page. It wasn't working. And I just sort of got to a point of saying, this is so not right that maybe doing the opposite of it would be right. So I did. I flipped it, you know, in, in those two ways. I changed the time setting and I changed the, the voice or the the, um, the sensibility, I suppose, to this quite uh, surreal slightly magical real uh speculative sort of um, vibe and then it came alive I could feel it it was that thing I suppose you know when I was talking before about feeling the engine starting then the engine suddenly started and I could make it move um, so that was a big discovery for me and it was and it turned out when I did this little study of five other writers that it was also used by them in different ways this thing of of You know, I think one of them said, when in doubt, do violence to the page, meaning, you know, if you've got a beautiful, smooth piece of writing that is sort of fine but a bit blah, then throw a bomb into it some way. And that might be literally in the story having some explosion or it might be ripping up the form and, you know, uh, sort of um, chopping it up somehow or, Changing the voice dramatically, or just causing some kind of um, breakage, <laughs> yeah, or chaos, yeah.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about the natural way of things. You, in your book, in various different chapters, you refer back to this book. I thought it was interesting just to talk about it, in and of itself, in the way that um, the sort of some of the points that you make about it. So, one of the first things you say about that is that it taught you more about your own creativity than anything else had done. Why was that and what did you learn from writing that novel? The
1: main thing was what I just mentioned before about accessing the subconscious, unconscious, strange, illogical, dreamy parts of my creative mind that were often very frightening to me. But it wasn't working if I tried to control it too much, I guess. Um, I had also around that time been doing interviews for my book, The Writer's Room, and uh, one of the people I interviewed was Joan London, who I adore. um, uh, She's an Australian novelist who I love. And she talked a lot about this thing of allowing work to come and letting the gifts of the um, imagination come to you. And I'd always been very focused on the kind of um, discipline side of writing, I suppose, you know, the work ethic and all of that. And I think that's still incredibly crucial. But it's not the only thing. And I think that the natural way of things taught me that. Um, And it gave the book a sort of power that my other books had not had in the same way. It gave it this sort of strange... Sort of slightly mysterious energy that somehow struck a nerve with people. And I, you know, I don't want to write a book like that again because it was also very difficult, you sort of psychically, I suppose. But I don't want to lose that um, dreamy, uh, unconscious um, aspect either because I do think that's where, for me personally, my best art has come
0: from you talk about also in that context um about being bold and letting go of the fear and taking risks and trusting your instincts all of that was obviously important as well
1: yes and again i sort of ended up doing that through necessity (laughs) you know it was like if i was going to finish this book i had to let all that stuff rip and i actually I didn't know who would read that book. And I remember saying to one of my sisters at the time I sort of felt like I didn't want to unleash this book on people I loved in a way which sounds weird, but I said to her, "Look, I'm writing this book and my family's always been incredibly supportive of me. You know, they're very very loving and very proud."
0: You're one of and five five kids, right?
1: Yeah, I am. Yeah. And I said to my older sister, look, I'm writing this book, but it's really dark and I don't want any of you to read it. And she sort of looked at me and was like, okay, weirdo. But she said, okay. And then she said, well, who will read it? And I thought, I don't know. And maybe nobody. And it was sort of an interesting moment to have to accept that maybe nobody will because it's so... You know, it's it's harrowing, but what I discovered through this letting the unconscious sort of um, take the reins for quite a bit of it that that somehow leavened the or somehow um, lightened the the darkness or made it um, energized it or something. It wasn't. I mean, what I hope it did is is stop the book from being totally bleak, Mm. you know, that all there is is this terrible Mm. bleak stuff because the dreamy, weird stuff sort of gave it another plane of existence in some way. Charlotte,
0: it does. And I love the way that you dealt with this book in the chapter called Take an Object, How Art Can Transfigure Hatred. In that chapter, you quote the painter, Jasper Jones, who said, Art is what happens when you take an object and do something to it and then do something else to it. So I wondered how did you apply that principle to the writing of this book, The Natural Way of Things?
1: Yes, I came across that Jasper Johns quote years ago and I always loved it, but I guess I sort of didn't really um, use it in, in a way for myself until The Natural Way of Things. So I guess, um, you know, take an object. So I had the the story of the Hay Institution for Girls, which is a real story of a horrific prison in New South Wales in the 60s and 70s for young women and teenage girls who were deemed to be somehow um, wayward, unruly, sexually promiscuous or whatever. Um, But, of course, the truth is that a lot of those young women had been assaulted in some way and they told somebody Mm. about it. And the telling was what got them put away. Horrific. Um, so that was the taking of an object. There was the hay story. That wouldn't let me go. I didn't particularly want to write about it, but I just couldn't stop thinking about it, particularly about that aspect of speaking, that they spoke and that's what we're, they that were being punished mm-hmm. for. It just enraged me so much that I couldn't stop thinking about it. So that was taking an object. Doing something to it was probably this... Um, you know the 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 opposition that we talked about before the taking it and putting it in in a much more imaginative space, making it surreal, uh, setting it in the slightly in the future. Um, so that I took the object, I did something to it that way, and then the doing something else. I think was probably all this other dreamy stuff that there's a white horse that comes and goes through the narrative that you never know is real or not really. Um, there's Yolanda, one of the main characters, who be- basically be- turns herself into an animal. You know? So there are these objects and creatures. Um, there's a little brown trout that one of the girls sort of identifies with. Um, there's this sense of the the order of this strange enclosed world starting to break up, and the and the guards and the girls sort of the the authority shifts. Um, but it was because of those dreamy sort of objects and transformations, um, I think that is probably the, the something else that mm. I then brought into it. Mm. But, you know, what I like to think about now is how many times you can do something else. You know, you just keep doing it and you can keep adding to your feeling of what's possible with a work. Um you know, and then there's a point where you might have done too much, and you need to pull strip back or strip some back, and so on. But I just, I think we're often we have an idea, and then we go, "Okay, I've, I've got my idea. There it is." But we forget that that's only the beginning of the idea, and and this might go back to the problem finding thing as well. You know, to think, "Okay, I've got my problem. I want to write about the hay institution for girls." But if that was too quick. It would have been not a not a good book for me to write because it would have been too literal. You know, I think Amanda Laurie uses the words too too mastered, too known. And I've quoted her in the book as well. Mm-hmm. And she talks about this thing of messages from another realm.
0: And the, the under what what is happening underneath the surface.
1: Exactly. The subtext and the subconscious, this sort of dreamy stuff. Um and that's what I think, you know, that's endless, There's endless possibilities in going to
0: that material. Charlotte, you say it several times in the book that you like talking to other people about your art and you particularly, not just other writers but people who, other creative people in other realms. And quite a few times you quote painters and I see there was a, a recent article in the Saturday paper where you talked about the influence of a particular artist and her still lives on your work. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. How does it help you as a fiction, largely as a fiction writer, to talk, for example, to painters about Mm. about your art compared to their art?
1: Yeah, I love talking to painters because they, you know, obviously talk about their work in completely different ways. Um, Lots of them don't really like talking about their work. But uh, I love hearing them talk about paint, you know, what they do with paint. Um, and to me, there's a, I'm sort of looking at one picture on my wall now, I said in that piece about the, the painter Jude Ray that to me, the mark of a really good picture is one that I feel I can walk into. I could go into the picture. It's not a flat thing on a wall. It's a it's a sort of portal. Um and that means that there are many layers and layers and layers of paint. So what I love is is knowing about the underpainting that goes on in a picture before you know that there'll be that a picture that you look at and it's it's yellow and orange might have started with a deep crimson base, you know. So that just tells me things about, I guess, all of the subtexts of of a piece of writing but with jude i'll talk about jude's pictures because it's the one i've been thinking about mostly lately she has this range of utterly stunning still life pictures she has she has all kinds of pictures but these are the ones that really have gripped me in terms of my own work so they they look quite sort of sedate and traditional on first glance but then she first of all she puts these very surprising things together so she has a beautiful antique vase Next to a fire extinguisher and a plastic bucket, and then a, and a a a, um, a fern frond sticking out of the bucket, and so that's sort of like oh, so this sort of traditional, beautiful, sort of sedate still life is suddenly already a little bit mm. sort of disquieting, yeah. Then there's the matter of of the the surface of the picture that is very, very sort of realistic, naturalistic. So you really recognise these objects. But then you you look just to the side and you see that the table these things are on is actually dripping. You know, it's it's sort of desiccating at the edges. There's a sort of sense of fragmentation that's happening all over the canvas. Um, The wall, you see the wall that is, you know, a nice bit of what you assume is wallpaper or something. And then it's sort of broken off and fragmenting. The stencils are sort of starting to drip and ooze. And then you'll see these very orderly, um you know, these objects that are all sort of vertical and they're sitting side by side. But then behind them will come a big swoop of what you may or may not realise is an extension cord, electrical cord. But in the pictures, it just looks like a a fine red, um, sort of swag of a line of some kind that you don't know what it is. So, all the time, there's this sort of destabilizing happening Mm. when, on first glance, it's a very orderly Mm. scene
0: still life, yeah.
1: And it's, I find it beautiful and very. What what I've discovered, I interviewed Jude for my podcast because I wanted to ask her about how she got this energy into a very static scene because I'm writing a book that I feel is maybe equivalent to a still life in a way. But, you know, in a novel, being too static is a problem. So I talked to her about how do you get energy into this work because they're so energetic and then she talked about this thing of breaking up the surface of interrupting um the scene with this you know diagonal mm. swish through it of um putting these unlike things together mm. things that you wouldn't ordinarily you wouldn't think a, a rusty uh, gas bottle is particularly worthy Beautiful. of <laughs> you know the devotion of attention that the antique vase is so All of those things, I just suck up. This is just like food for me in order to how to attack this still life of a book that I'm
0: writing. One of the things that you've said about why you wrote this book that I really liked is that you said, I feel that radical cross pollinating creativity is the only thing that's going to save us now in approaching the huge problems that we have like climate change and the pandemic. So I wondered, what does radical cross-pollinating creativity look like and why is it so important?
1: I think that the people we see really changing things for the better in our world are people who have, who are highly imaginative and who are really good at looking outside their own field for influence and for nourishment. Um, One of the my experiences of this was the residency i had at the charles perkins center at sydney university it is a science research facility it's named after charlie perkins the great aboriginal activist who and they chose him to name it after because they said he did not stick within the boundaries that were allotted to him you know in his life and he was radical in his crossing of those boundaries and, and bringing people together who, you know, you wouldn't think would come together and so on. So the Charles Perkins Centre has had almost from the start a writer in residence, a creative writer in residence. And you I were the, the
0: first. Yeah, I
1: was the first one, so lucky to be the first one. Um, this is funded by a private philanthropist, incredibly generous, imaginative woman called Judy Harris. And this... The whole place brings together unlike things in the form of people from unlike professions. So there are philosophers and, you know, biologists and um, all kinds of different scientists, uh, nurses, geriatricians, sleep people, um, but also creative writers, students, super experts, mm. Um and and this is building all the time. These connections are building all the time. And um, this was
0: where you did your work on the weekend, wasn't it?
1: That's, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. It is a place that brings together all these different people from different professions. And Steve Simpson, the the head of this organisation, is a biologist, um, and he said you cannot underestimate the 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 energy and the morale that comes out of bringing excellence together. Mm. And I feel that in that building, you walk in and you just get this charge of these incredible minds from all over the world. People are, you know, seconded to come and work there from Oxford and Harvard and, um, you know, and lots of people in Australia. Um, and it's it's this feeling of um, brilliance all around you and it's very exciting. So I feel that for, we have these massive... Um, challenges to face. And, you know, I think scientists will be the first people to say scientists alone cannot um, fix climate change. We need everyone on the case, you know, and we need to come up with new ways of doing things and to take risks and to try a million different things. Mm. And I feel that that's why I, I, I wish that, you know, creative People were more involved in all walks of Mm. life, not, and they want to be. It's not Mm. that they want to be stuck out on the edges.
0: Charlotte, final question is um, asking you about a quote. When somebody asked you about what was the idea of this book, what did you hope to achieve with it? And you gave this great response, which I just wanted to ask you to expand on a little bit. You said, this book is a call to just be a bit braver and wilder in our own lives and work and open up to a sense of unknowing of discomfort and mystery and curiosity and failure and the fruits of failure. Why do we need to do that? How will that help us?
1: Because I think it's only by accepting that failure is a part of great um, progressive change that we can actually get to the good stuff. If we, we decide that um we only want projects that we know are going to work, then that means we're only repeating what's been done before. Mm. If we can open up to to ideas that are not fully formed, even, you know, I think people who work in in areas where they have to brainstorm with each other understand that it's only by going, right, we know that 90% of these ideas are going to be crap, but that does not stop us from speaking them out because it's only by doing that that somebody else can go, oh, well, look, not that, but what about this thing? And then there's this sort of building process that happens and they spark off each other and create this sort of momentum of this sort of cloud of ideas. Um, but if there's this constant um, judgment and fear of failure uh, and risk-taking, then we don't get anywhere. We don't, we don't develop anything new. We just stick with the same old things which you know we're seeing not working all the time. And the real the real change makers are people who just ignore that, you know, who just go well I'm just going to do this thing myself then. I'm not going to wait for the culture to catch up with me or whatever. But I sort of think if we could embrace that rather than just sort of be suspicious of it um then we would just life would be so much more interesting <laughs> for starters. And we could you know, we could work together on things that are intractable,
0: seemingly. That seems like a great place to stop. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I wish you. you all the best of luck. Thank you so much, Charlotte.
1: Thanks so much, Nick. Very, very kind of you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleaberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Aberdy, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.